0: Well, let's just start in the front, and we'll read all the way to the end today. How's that sound? Yeah. All right. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start. want to kick this door open or closed? What do you think? This door here, open or closed? It's going to be hard enough keeping people on on board, but when that dog comes running through, it's gone. I won't have anything. It's funny, because my dog did that once. We had a missionary here on a Sunday night, and I used to sit over here all the time. And we had a missionary come in on a Sunday night, and uh, um, Sharon was downstairs, and I was up here. Something was going on up and down. We brought the dog because the dog had a thing, or we couldn't, or something. She decided to let the dog out, and I don't know she was downstairs, and all of a sudden I was sitting over here. And he had a collar on. And if you have a dog, and your dog has a collar, you know what that sounds like. And I just took a deep breath, because here it's coming. You can't stop that. Dog's going to do what a dog's going to do, right? So all you can do is, okay, what's that dog thinking? What can we do? And um, dog came and click, 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 came up here and looked for me. And he was all happy to see me. There's nothing you can do. Just got up, walked out, and went over here. Dog followed me out. But um, that's what you do, right? A couple of months ago, a month ago, I was um, <clears throat> I was watching stuff on YouTube, and uh, on the feed comes up over here on the right. On I don't know if you watch it, but it tells you what you want to watch, right? It knows you. And up came a a, a thing that Ken Ham was doing. Ken Ham is a guy that teaches a lot of creation stuff, among other things. But this was one of his creation things, and it had a cool title a bunch of things Christians aren't doing right or doing wrong or whatever. I don't know what it was, but um, Ken Ham was doing his thing. It was like 16 or 18 minutes long, and I didn't watch the whole thing. I just wondered what the title meant to what he was saying, and is he compelling enough like anything on TV or YouTube? If it's not compelling in the very first few seconds, I'm done. You have to get me now or I'm done. And um, he got me, so I watched a little bit of it. And part of his thing was, he said, <clears throat> he said one of the, Issues that Christians have now is they they don't realize that there's a Christian worldview and there's an alternative worldview, right? And and then he began to drill down on common topics that you would find in that you always see that's always big news, whatever it is, and we could fill in the blanks. From um, abortion would be one and. Uh, creation versus evolution, just stuff like that. And if you have a different world view, that's that's where the disconnect oftentimes is. And I thought that's that's interesting. And and then he made some comment about our worldview is defined in the first eleven chapters of Genesis. That's where the world view comes from. It's where the world started. This is the way God created. It. This is the way it was supposed to go forward. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I began to read Genesis chapter 1-1 and took the filters off, kind of took my guard down and just read the words on the page as they presented themselves with the least amount of bias that I could do, right? Because when you think about any Bible story, think about any event, there's a picture in your mind, there's a video in your mind, there's a movie in your mind about the events. If I talked about um, uh, some, combo, well I did this a couple, a, a month or so ago about the story of David's life, and we talked about uh, the battle between him and Goliath, right? We have in our minds a movie that plays, right? There's two armies against a valley in the valley of wherever that was, right? And In our mind, there's a picture of this valley. You can see people on the sides. In your mind, there's a picture. And either you saw it in a movie or you created it on your own. But the first time you heard the story of David and Goliath, in your mind, it created a picture. And forever, that picture gets moved and altered. And the commentary and everything you learn about it goes back into that picture, that video that you've created. That's the way we think. We think in pictures. If I said the word fire truck, everybody in this room instantly has a picture of a fire truck in their mind. Everybody's fire truck is different and everybody's fire truck is the, is the same. It's a fire truck. Yours is different than hers, but they're both fire trucks, right? And so we in our lives put this story together in our mind and then we add or change it as we move forward. But I think sometimes we get so cemented in our minds of this view that we've created of this that we just go past the details. Now, oh, I know the story of uh, Saul on the way to Damascus, Paul on the way to Damascus, and he was struck down by something or something, and that happened. We have the story in our mind. In my mind, there's a road. There's a place. I can see the surroundings of where that happened in my mind. And if you have details in your story, you do too. So today when we read through this and I'm going to go through three chapters of Genesis and we're going to go through it not unlike what I did with David, we're going to read through this. And some of the stuff that's really really common that I don't want to drill down on, I'm not going to, I'm just going to kind of gloss over it. Not because it's not important, it's just not where this needs to go. But when you read through this story and if I emphasize something or I read something, I want you to to question your current picture and video. To maybe re-include something that you go, oh, I never thought of that before. How does, how does that fit into my video? And I want you to be open to your video changing. I'm not gonna add some grand new, you know, theological, I'm just gonna reread the words. It says, and he called the light day. I'm just glanced down at verse five. I just happened to glance at verse five. Notice that day is capitalized. Day is a name, so he named it day. Just little stuff like that that I didn't realize until this instant when I read that just now. And so when we read through this, and we're going to get to the end of chapter 3, and I'm going to move through this kind of quickly. And if I blather over the top of stuff, it's not because it's not important. It's just I don't want to spend a time a bunch dwelling on that. I'm not going to recreate creation. I'm not going to go through all the doctrines of creation. I'm not going to do any of that. But as we go through it and, and something gets pointed out, I just want you to think, well, I never thought of that before. And I want you to be open to the idea that the picture you have in your mind isn't complete and that maybe you could add some detail or go, oh, I always thought it was this way. That says that it isn't. I need to change my picture. So let's read through this. And when we get to the end, um, part of it's funny, but the more I read of it, the less funny it gets. So we'll see what happens when we get down there in chapter 3. Here we go. <clears throat> Genesis one one, and I'm going to go quickly. So if you don't have a Bible and you can read, I would encourage you to get a Bible in front of you and follow along, because if you read it with your eyes and hear it with the sound, you get double the impact. So, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Notice heaven is singular here. I don't know why that's important, but it's singular here. Later, it turns into plural. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light into darkness, or light from darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Remember, God created this whole place in six days. That was day one. He created light. Uh, Verse 6, and God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. I don't know what that means. Let it divide the waters from the waters. Maybe you know. I don't know what that means. And God made the firmament firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. There's day two. Day three. And God said that the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Have you thought about that? And let the dry land appear, and it was so. What does that even look like? I don't know. And God called the dry land, earth, capital E, and the gathering together of the waters he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself, why did he put that in there, whose seed is in itself? We have fruit now that doesn't have seeds in it. Did you know that? Did you know that, that we have fruit that you can go to the store and buy and it has no seeds in it and it will not replicate? Did you know that? That's what we've done to what he did. Right. Yeah. And by the way, it tastes good. You know, I'm not <laughs> saying it doesn't taste good, um, but that's not what he made Just so you know. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after its kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. So he did water, he did light and he did water and now he did, uh, he did plants on the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven and divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth as it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So it seems to me like he put space in motion there, right? What we call space or the universe, it seems like he kind of put it in motion there. That's what it seems like. And verse 20, and God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. Verse 20, the first time in your Bible, the word life is used. Notice that he doesn't use the word life to describe plants. Plants don't live. Plants grow and wither. Nowhere in scripture do plants die. They wither. I think that's interesting and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. Verse 21, and God created great whales. Why did he single out whales? I don't know, but he did. Right? This is what God does. There's other stuff in the seas and the ocean. Why does he single out whales? And every living creature that moveth. Notice he says, living creature that moveth. And I'll point out living here in a minute with a different word which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. God talked to the life, the living creatures, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the sea, and let the fowls multiply in the earth. Verse 23, In the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creature after its kind, cattle creeping and creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man. This is all people, by the way. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing, over every living thing and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth and every tree and which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed to you. It shall be for meat. So this is the food we're supposed to eat. Right. Originally. To every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given thee. I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. So, all of the life was supposed to eat all of the plants. That's the way he set it up. That changes, but this is the way he set it up. And that matters when we get to the end. Uh, or end of chapter 3. And God saw that everything that he had made, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So this is, this is the end of chapter one. It's kind of the chronology. It pretty much falls in chronological order. You can see he numbered the days. There's very significant chronology here. And that's kind of the chronology. But chapter two, we kind of go back and fill in the story a little bit here. So the chapter two is also has a chronology, but it's not as, as, as rigid as chapter one. Okay. We're done to six days. We're six days into the planet. We're six days into the universe, if you will. And here we go. Thus the heavens, notice it's plural now. So when he split it all up with that firmament thing, we went from heaven to heavens. Okay. Ask Ken Ham, ask Joe Brown. They know the story on that. Just pointing it out. And the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he hath made and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he hath made. Did it ever dawn on you that God had to work to do that? It didn't dawn on me till yesterday after I'd read this a bunch. He rested because of the work. I mean, I always thought God's just snapping his fingers and stuff's happening, speaking it into existence. Like, how tough can that be? He's God. He can do anything he wants. Yet, it says here, he rested from the work that he hath made. Interesting to notice, and this will come out in another verb that I'm going to show you, He created stuff and He made stuff. It's not the same. Now, I don't, I don't want to drill down on the difference between created, made, and formed. We're going to get to the word formed in a minute. I just want you to understand that they're not overlapping. Yes, created, made, and formed have a Venn diagram and some of that stuff overlaps. But God definitely uses three different words here to describe that. And and so when you're in your little timeline, in your mind of God making, creating, and forming stuff, just stick that in there and go, wait a minute. Did he create that or did he make that? Okay. And it can potentially be important. That's all I'm saying there. And I never really thought through this until I read it with the filter off and go, okay, what's in here this time, right? When you read this with your built-in bias, you're always going to read the same thing. But when you take down this, the filter and you take, okay, what, what's, what's not new? What's always been here that I never saw, right? And on the seventh day, God ended his work. Verse Chapter 2, verse 2, And God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he hath made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in he had rested from all the work which God had created and made. So why does he say it differently in two different verses? I don't know, but he did, and there's significance there. So the next time you run across created or made somewhere else in your Bible, well, what is the difference? Why did he use this word here and that word there? That's all I'm asking you to do today. Is just put that in your storyline a little bit. Verse four, these are the generations of the heavens, there it is plural again, and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice he is created and made in the same verse. Just pointing it out. This is kind of interesting. Verse 5, and every plant of the field, before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field, before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. This comes into the curse in chapter 3. So we might have to come back to this verse. But plants grew before they needed to be watered or tilled. Right? But there went up a mist. And why? Because in verse 6, this is, but there went up a mist from the earth and the water and watered the whole face of the ground. Okay. And the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground. So what's the difference between creating and forming? Well, I understand creating is making something out of nothing. Okay, so created man. And then he formed man. I have an idea what that is. He created the idea of man and then he formed that creation. I don't know, but he uses a different word. That's the important thing here. He uses a different word and he breathed. Look at this. And he breathed. Look at this verse seven. And he breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. There's that word again. And man became a living soul. So animals, by definition, don't have souls because God didn't do this to them. He created the animals, and they're living, which are different than the plants, which aren't living according to the Bible. Now, there's something, and I know in our scientific taxonomy, we call plants life. I get that. We've expanded the definition of this four-letter word, life. I get it. But that's not God's definition. That's all I'm pointing out. I don't know what plants are according to God. They're not life according to the word. Now, there's something. They're, they regenerate themselves, and they look like life to us, but there's something else. At least that's what the Bible says. Right. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, okay? And there he put the man <laughs> which he had formed. Why didn't he say that's where he put the man that he had created? I don't know. But he says this instead. And out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. So did you try to figure out there's Eden, there's east of Eden, and a river went out of Eden to water the garden. Have you tried to put your mind around that? How do you draw a map of Eden, east of Eden, a garden and a river that goes out of Eden into a garden? I don't know how to draw that map, but there it is. You can figure that out on your own. And the river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence, it was parted. So one river leaves out of Eden and became four heads. The first was Pison with gold, verse 12. And Delium and Onyx, and the name of the second was Gihon, verse 13, and 14, and the name of the third was Hedekel, which goeth out of Assyria, and the fourth is the river Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden. Wow, now we have a garden, we have a garden of Eden, we have east of Eden, and we have a river going out of Eden that feeds this garden. I don't get the geography, but I'm not going to try to solve it today. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, and this is important of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is the first commandment. This is the first reference we have of God talking to man right there. This is the first this is the first conversation that the Lord God said um, where did i just read that and the Lord God commanded the man saying I don't know if he said something else to the man before that we don't have a reference for that maybe it happened i don't know but this is the first reference we have of the Lord God commanding man Verse 18, and the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Anybody know what a semicolon does? A semicolon divides two complete sentences and puts them together in one. So if you read that verse, and the Lord God said, It is not good for that the man should be alone. If you put a period there, that would be a complete sentence in the English language. If you put a period there and there isn't one, and I'm not suggesting that there should be one, there would be a second sentence in the sentence of all that said, I will make him and help meet for him. Okay? And I just read that incorrectly, by the way. I will make him and help meet for him. That's a second sentence. So let's just take that second sentence after the semicolon and do a little diagramming here if we can. This is third grade. This should be easy, right? What's the subject in that sentence? I. Thank you very much. What's the verb? Make. Will is an adverb to make. So the the whole sentence, if we just broke it down to to subject, verb, and predicate, or subject, verb, and object. I will make... What is the object? Help. Help. I will make help. Help is the object. He didn't make him. Him is the indirect object. I will make him and help meet for him. If the object of the sentence is help... God created woman as an help for man. That is his, that is her purpose. That is what, and the word "meet," by the way, is a word that is defined as specifically made or engineered for something. So when two parts meet up, when the head meets the exhaust manifold, they meet exactly with the perfectly engineered head gasket that goes in there. When the intake manifold meets the top of the block and the sides of the head, it goes in there perfectly. They are mated to meet. You know what I think people read this sentence as? I think they think of help meet like help mate. Right. And I think they think help mate, oh yeah, they're my mate. I'm supposed to help them. <laughs> like a soulmate or a roommate or a shipmate. Right? I think that's the way we think of this. I think we read this as helpmate, meet. I have heard women say, I'm his helpmeet, using meat as the object, and it's not. Meat is the adjective that describes the object help. Yeah. So if in your mind you have always thought of this, oh, I'm his helpmeet, like his helpmate. I'm just a Black & Decker workmate. <laughs> I'll help him work. There's some truth to that. Yes, you are a help. But help is the object. Meat is the process and the decision-making and the engineering behind the type of help you are engineered to be. Right. You're not a mate. You're not his soulmate. She is not my soulmate. That doesn't exist. That's fiction. That's Hollywood. There is no soulmate. It's not in the Bible. So maybe it is. But it's worldly. It's worldview over here. It's not good. It's not Bible view. It's somebody's view. Yeah. Okay. And if that works in your little princess land, and, oh, 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 I'm going to be my soulmate someday, and I'm going to get married. You can think that. That's the worldview. Yeah. You're welcome to think that. I just think that there's probably a better view. Yeah. Can I go there? Yeah. So it's important that you understand this isn't helpmate, workmate, soulmate, shipmate, roommate. No, no, no. <laughs> the noun is Help. The adjective is, is meat. Okay, I'm done. And the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God hath taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Okay, that's just... I'm How far apart were they when they were made? So he brought her... To man. By the way, Eve doesn't have a name yet. That's cool. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, capital W, which is interesting because she was taken out of man, capital M. Now, this was interesting. I read this to Sharon last night and I said, I don't get this. And Adam said, now this is bone of my bones. Now think what Adam said out loud to God, to the world, to his his wife. Adam said this out loud. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Fine. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother and they shall cleave and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Wait a minute. There, there are no fathers and mothers yet, right? Why did, why did God put this here? Now he did. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just don't know why. And and I can understand if you put, if you just took out therefore shall, if you took that out, that makes more sense to me. Just lowly guy on the planet reading the book. A man shall leave his father and mother. I get that. I get that. I understand the process behind that. I understand what that means. But therefore shall, because man, because woman was taken out of man, therefore shall. Do you understand my disconnect here? How How does this man, woman coming out of man, Turn into therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh I understand the idea of cleaving and and becoming one flesh I get all of that, but therefore because of this action in the previous verse that's why this exists I'm not questioning it I'm just trying to understand it a little better okay now read verse twenty five and I I want you to read verse twenty five in a Uh, I'm just going to read verse 25 and just read this like an adult because we're going to get down to this in a minute, okay? And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I don't want to drill down on this, but later it becomes, it's interesting what this means. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay. verse three or chapter three, and this is where we're going to really get to the end of this, okay? So what do we have? We have creation, we have forming, we have making, we have resting, we have all of that. That was the first week. And then we go back and we kind of backfill that story a little bit, right? We kind of backfill how how where woman came from, a little bit of rules, uh kind of set the stage a little bit. Okay, they're living in this place, in this garden that has a river that goes out of it that somehow feeds itself, that's east of Eden, but they're in Eden, and I don't know. Okay. And now they're married, right? Because he refers to the woman now as his wife. She doesn't have a name yet. Right? Okay, we know that. They're married. Okay. There was no wedding, which I'm fine with. By the way, I'm high on marriage. Not so much on weddings. Okay. (laughs) When anybody at work announces they're having a wedding, oh, they don't even announce the date yet. Oh, we're getting married. I says, I says, oh, I'm sorry. I can't make it. I'm working that day. Every time I hear it, I don't even know what the day is. I'm sorry, I can't make it. I'm working that day. So they're married. They're in the garden. Here's the rules. Off we go. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord hath made. Why does he say which the Lord hath made? He's told us for two chapters that he made it all, and yet he reminds us again yet in verse in chapter three that he made him. Now I'm not saying it's wrong, but why did he put that in there? What is he driving home? I don't know, but it's interesting that he says it again. And he said unto the woman, he being the serpent, and he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said ye shall not have eat every ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Let's think about this story a little bit. How much time happened between verse 25 of chapter two and verse one of chapter three? Who knows? Perfect answer. Can we all agree that there was some time there? Yeah. So in your mind, as you're creating this movie, Right. This is the next. We read this thing in 15 minutes. We read. We read a a hundred years here in 15 minutes. It didn't take 15 minutes. It lasted a long time. However long long is. I mean, and and so. He he just creates them. He just marries them. They're married. I don't know if he marries them, but they're married. I'm not going to drill down on that. They're married. And the next verse, now the serpent. So clearly some time had to have gone by. He didn't form woman over here because he said he brought the woman to Adam. So there was a distance. I don't know how far. So he brought the woman. Adam says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, makes an announcement to the world, which happens to be his wife. (laughs) Right? Okay. And the proclamation of, of cleaving and one flesh, boom. And the next breath is now the serpent. Clearly some time went by there. I don't know how long, but time had to have gone by. And the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, period. If the servant, serpent is subtle, and it is, and how do we know that? Because God said he is. Now the serpent said, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of this garden? If the serpent is, su- is subtle, do you think the first interaction with the serpent and the wife of Adam is that sentence? No. If he was subtle, he would have been subtle. That is not Subtle. <laughs> That is questioning God in the very first sentence that's recorded between the serpent and Adam's wife. Now, yes, I'm taking some liberty here, but that does not sound subtle to me. So I'm going to take some moment here to put in a little of what could have happened. Time went by. A lot of time went by. And Eve interacted, not Eve, Adam's wife interacted with this serpent a number of times, maybe a bunch. Maybe they were pets, companions, like we have dogs, like I have Tucker. Now, I'm making this up. I understand that. But I want you to get out of your timeline for a minute and think there's no possible way in my mind that that was the first words uttered by a serpent to Eve. It can't fit in my mind. So time went by, and this snake came by. On a regular basis? Irregular basis? I don't know. But at some point, we know this, that those words came out of that snake. Serpent. Sorry, it says serpent. I'm sure there's a difference between a serpent and a snake. I'll try to stick with serpent. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Did, did he say that? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. That is true. But of the fruit of the but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, "Ye shall not eat of it; neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die." Now I've heard a number of people preach on this and say, "Well, you've added something to what was commanded." Hmm? Did she? Let's look over. Just look over here to verse seventeen. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that you eatest of it, therefore thou surely die. That's verse 17. And in verse 22, And the rib which God had taken from man made he a woman. So he gave that commandment. God gave that commandment to Adam. Eve wasn't in existence yet. So the only way Eve could have learned of this commandment is if she was told by him. She couldn't even overhear the conversation between God and Adam because she wasn't alive yet. So the only way she could have known that is if Adam told her. And Adam had to have told her. That's the only way she could have known. She didn't get a memo or get an email. She had to be told by Adam. Okay. So when Adam told her that, how long after Eve was formed... Did he tell her? I don't know, but he told her. Now, did he ever have to reiterate that process? And in the process of reiterating that, "Don't eat this." Did he add to it? Yeah, "Don't, don't even touch it." Right. I don't know. Maybe he did. Do you think? Do you think? Um, do you think maybe he saw Eve over there by that tree looking at it? I don't know. Do you think he was over there looking at it? Do you think he was looking at it, knowing mean, full well, I can't touch it? No, I'm not even gonna to touch it. I'm gonna add that rule myself. I'm not even gonna to touch it. But do you think Adam ever over what I'm gonna? Man, that smells good. I don't know. I don't know. But this happened. Right? Something happened. You shall not eat of it, neither shall ye die. Okay, verse three. Eve is saying to the serpent, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. We know the end of this story, and we'll get there. But I want to get to the end kind of for a second so we can back up and look at this just a little differently. We know what ultimately happens. Adam and his wife partake of this fruit. Um, um, and uh, their eyes are opened, the Bible says. They hide. God comes. He confronts them. He hands out the judgment and casts them out of the garden. That's the Reader's Digest version there. Okay, And we're going to read the whole version here in a minute. Did they die that day? No. They didn't die because they're still walking around. Adam lived 800 years or more, 812, I think. I don't know how long Eve lived. So they didn't die that day. Did uh, verse five, this is the uh, verse four. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Was the serpent right? Serpent didn't lie to her. They didn't die that day. They didn't die the next day. Adam didn't die for 800 years. I'll get to the point here. Hang on just a minute. And verse five, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil. Is that true? I absolutely know it's true because when you get down to the, verse, the end of chapter three, it refers to. Show, when we get there, we'll read it. It refers to them as one of, as one of them, which God referred to in plural. He refers to them as one of them, so they are as one of God's. Satan or the serpent was right. They are as one of God's. True, and they found out the difference between good and evil. That happened. The serpent never lied to, to, to Adam's wife. He deceived her. The Bible says he beguiled her. If you look up the word guile, it's, it's, it's uh, cunning, it's crafty, it's deceitful. He never lied to her. They didn't die. They became knowledgeable. They saw the wisdom. That all happened to them. Do you realize at that moment, they really didn't know the difference between good and evil. They really didn't know what good was, regardless of how good that it was, because they had nothing to compare it to. This is all they knew at the point, right? So this so the serpent beguiled them, deceived her, crafty cunning, deceived her. By the way, if you read Proverbs, let's go over to Psalm chapter thirty four. I'm gonna turn one scripture here. Psalm thirty four and I think it's thirteen Psalm thirty four, thirteen. Keep thy tongue from evil, comma, and thy lips from speaking guile. Guile is deceitfulness, is craftiness, is cunning. It's it's designing your speech in a way to represent one thing but actually elicit another. That's what guile is. It is evil. Right there it says it is evil. The next verse, depart from evil and do good. So even though... The serpent was telling the truth. It was evil. And I just want you to understand, I think we do that too. We do that to manipulate our kids into getting what we want out of our kids. We do that to our parents, to manipulate our parents, to get out of them what we want, our employer, our employees. Sometimes we're less than truthful, or we're completely truthful with absolute ill intent. And that's what the serpent was. I just want to point out, I've heard that preached a bunch of times. The the serpent never lied to Eve. Everything the serpent said is true. Yet it was deceitful and evil at the same time. And when the the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. How did that happen, guys? Have you thought about that? How, How? what were the mechanics? How did that process get executed? Were they both over there walking around? Oh, there's that tree again. Hey, have you ever looked at how those, have you ever looked how the leaves form right out this? Did you ever notice that there's kind of fuzz on there, like a peach? Did you notice that? No, I didn't see that. You'll notice that some of these on this knowledge of good and evil, you see how it turns red here on this side, but it it stays kind of yellow. Did that conversation come up? How did Adam and his wife get to a place, physical place, where they were in proximity of this tree and a decision was made to reach out and select one? Was Adam there? I don't know. Did she take one and cut it in half and give it to him? Did she pick three or four or five and come back with a basket of other fruit? They didn't have baskets. Maybe they did. Well, they learned how to sow. We'll show you how sow comes in. So did she have some type of uh, device with which she could transport multiple pieces of fruit to the garden? How often did they eat? I don't know. But this happened. And now Adam's faced with a choice. Did she beguile Adam? Adam? I don't know. But it happened. Right? There's fruit. It said they ate it together with her and also and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. If you read this chronologically, it looks like she ate it at first and gave some to him and maybe that happened. Yeah. Kind kind of looks like she ate it at first. So she eaten it, and, and Adam goes, "What do you got there, honey? What is that? Oh, just try it." How did that happen? We know one thing: she said something to him, and I'll show you how it happened. How we know that? And the eyes of them were both opened. This is this is this is figuratively right. This is not physically. Verse seven, and their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They had to be long enough in the garden to learn how to sew. Why did they have to learn how to sew? What caused them to learn how to sew? What were they sewing together? How did they know they could sew? How did that happen? How long did that take? Time, folks. This took time. Verse 8, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife, notice Adam and his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees in the garden. And the Lord God called called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? Did God know where Adam was? You'll notice in Scripture a lot of times Jesus, even in the New Testament, would ask people a question that everybody knew the answer to. It's a communication tool. Lawyers do it. They already know the answer in court. What with, with the answer is before they ask the question. They're not trying to get to the truth. They're trying to open a conversation. A little tidbit. If you're ever in a situation where you don't want to answer the question, ask your own. Because the person asking the questions in the conversation is in charge. Just so you know. Where art thou? And he, or Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Did he hide himself from God because he was afraid? Or did he hide himself from God because he was naked? Or was it both? And then the question comes in Who told thee that thou wast naked? Okay, the last verse in chapter 2 said they were naked and they were not ashamed. So something happened there. I don't know what happened, but something happened there. This new knowledge of good and evil is upon them. How long did it take after they partook of the fruit until this happened? Long enough to sow. And when they were sowing... Hurry up, hurry up. I know he's coming. He comes in the cool of the day. Did that happen? How did this happen? Did they feel guilty at that point? Did they think they were going to be cool? Were they coming up with a story to tell God? What happened from the man this tastes good? What just happened? From that point till when God showed up in the cool of the day. How long did that take? Did they eat it in the morning? I don't know. And he said, Who told thee he was naked? Verse verse 11. Hast thou eaten of the tree? Wherefore I commanded thee that thou shouldn't not not eat? Did did God know the answer to those questions? Of course he did. But this is how you drill down. You ask questions that have obvious answers. Rhetorical questions as we call them. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now, did, what was the nature of the way he said that back to God? Was he accusing God? Was he, was he repentant? Was he remorseful? Was he guilty? What was in his mind as he was saying that? That he was afraid because they hid themselves. So on some level, you see what I'm saying? I don't know what he was feeling, thinking, emotionally experiencing at that point, but he'd been thinking about it a while because he had time to make fig leaves and sew them together. I don't know. Was this an excuse? Did he come up with it on the moment? Did God put that on his mind to say that so we would talk about it 6,000 years later? I don't know. Maybe all of it's true. And the man said, the woman, and in verse 13, and the Lord said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? Man, that's strong. I mean, I, I've shouted at my dog, what did you do? I've been mad at my kids. What did you do? But for God to look you in the face and say, what is this that thou hast done? Man, that's just strong. And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Did she take her excuse from Adam and blame somebody else? I've heard that preached a bunch. Maybe she did. I don't know. But I know this. That's what she said. And she was right. The serpent did beguile her, so she didn't lie to God. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, and here's where he doles out the punishment. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. That was the curse given to the serpent. So I have reason to believe that the serpent didn't crawl on his belly up until then. Because he wouldn't have said that if he, now I don't know what the serpent looked like before. I don't know. But he didn't look like the serpent we have now. Something happened to all serpents that day. Verse 15. I don't even know what it means. I've heard it preached 20 times in my life. I don't know what it means. I'm not even going to weigh in on it. Verse 16. Now he's handing out the Punishment to the woman. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be unto thy husband and he shall have rule over thee. So a couple, three things happened here. Sorrow didn't exist until that verse. God invented sorrow. Sorrow in that moment. That's where sorrow comes from. I looked up the definition of sorrow, and sorrow is that painful, mental emotion that you experience after the loss of something good. I can look back in life on sorrowful moments, and I don't want to talk about them too long because I'll just start crying because they're real and there's people in this room that are in that or very recently removed from that people that have lost spouses and mothers and children and it's hard it's hard Um that's the punishment. God invented that punishment that day. And you know what when we think about sinning this when we think about sinning they didn't do a very bad sin. I mean when we think about the egregiousness that mankind has has put on everybody just people that have done just egregious horrible things. Versus this, yes, yeah, sin is sin, right either either are or you aren't yeah the but there's degrees of it and and there's puni- there's greater punishment for more egregious stuff, and that's evident in scripture, but this is little <laughs> when you think about sin, this is a little one, not that it's good or right, or one's not it's just in our mental capacity to understand sin, this is way at the bottom. I do think it's rather interesting. I used to think this is funny. Maybe it still is. In sorrow thou shalt, verse 16, in sorrow sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and her punishment and thy desire shall be to thy husband. Isn't it funny that my punishment to women is that you're going to desire men. (laughs) (laughs) I still think that's funny, right? Right? You're going to desire that. And then he hands out the punishment on man. Man is a dirty, sweaty, nasty creature. And guess what, woman? You're going to like it. (laughs) That sorrow, though, it makes me think now, after reading this this past week, he invented sorrow as a punishment for us and i think we should when we're in those moments of sorrow i think it would do us all good to remember okay this this is god's deal this is what this is this is part of god's plan he invented this we don't have to like it we just have to understand that that sorrow is from him by the way there's there's relief from that sorrow yeah there is All right, and he shall have rule over thee. So her punishment was uh, sorrow and childbirth. You're going to desire this guy to be nasty and sweaty, and he's going to rule over thee. Um, and Adam's and unto Adam he said, "Oh, this is this is brutal right here. This is this is brutal when you think about a husband-wife relationship and the punishment that they're going through, right?" They had a perfect life, and they messed it up. And this is what he says out loud to Eve, maybe the serpent who's nearby, and Adam, and to the whole world, because we have it recorded here. This is what God said to Adam, and this is brutal. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. That's what he said first. If that isn't powerful, Why, why is all this punishment coming down? Why is this happening? Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife. And, and basically he hearkened to the voice of his wife and not the voice of God. I get that. Right? That's the comparison he's making here because he talks about the voice earlier. This is, he, he, they, they heard the voice in the garden. They hid from the voice of God. So there's a reason why he uses the word voice here because they hid from the voice of God. I mean, it's just its just the whole powerful, the, the overlapping themes of voice and words and speaking. its It's huge here. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree, which I have commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. That ground out there is cursed because Adam hearkened unto the voice of his wife and not unto God in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Think about that for a moment. Sorrow is that mental anguish that you experience from the loss of something good. Do you realize that Adam would never reach over to a peach tree and pop off a peach and eat one ever that good again, ever, ever, Because thorns and thistles and cursed is the ground. He got booted out of the garden. You're on your own, buddy. And what does it say here in verse 18? Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread until thou return unto the ground. For out of it was taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living What He created all the animals before he created Eve. And now she's the mother of all living. I don't know, but she is. That's what the Bible says. And unto Adam also, and unto his wife, did the Lord make coat skins, coats of skins and clothed them. If she had time to befriend a serpent over time, And there was no evil and there was no death. And she didn't see other animals kill and eat other animals because all the animals ate plants. How horrific must this scene have been when God killed some animals and hung their skin on them for clothing. That's just that's just that's just harsh. And verse 22, and the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. Remember? Behold, man has become as one of us. Remember when the serpent beguiled Eve and said, You'll become as gods, knowing good from evil? Did that happen? Sure did, because in verse 22 it says it happened. The Satan, the serpent didn't lie to Eve. This is right there. Because the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand... And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the God sent them forth out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove him out of them. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east end of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turneth away every turn, turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I I reflect on this story and what, What hits me is in sorrow, that sorrow comes from this, what we call, original sin. By the way, the word sin is never brought up in these chapters, but we know that it is. And this sorrow that we all experience day to day came from that. Before that, there was no sorrow. And I think when we reflect on some of those very sorrowful moments that we have, remembering back on the, the things that were good that we don't have access to anymore, whether it's a loved one or an event or a place or a thing or a time. That sorrow is from God. And when you go through that sorrow, and we all do and will, that the first thing you is, okay, God, God's doing this. This is a God thing. He invented this. And I think it would do us good to reflect on okay, it's really good. it was really good. I, uh, eight or six or eight or ten years, eight or eight years ago, I went to a job interview, and uh, it was going really well, <clears throat> and the um, um, guy was asking me we were just it was a real casual interview, and he asked some serious questions, and for whatever reason I had serious answers for him. And he asked me at the time, this is going to be hard to tell the story, guys. I'm sorry. He asked me at the time, what do you do for fun? And I said, and because it was a job interview and I don't know what his politics are, I didn't tell him that I was a competitive pistol shooter. I kind of leave that out. So in the moment, I had to come up with my second best answer. What do you do? What do you do for fun? And he had just died just a couple of days earlier. And I just sat in that interview and cried like a baby because that dog meant so much. And I know it's just a dog. I know that. And I remind myself that it's just a dog. But it changed the way I parented. It changed the way I thought about Everything. Because when you have a relationship with a dog it's 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 a and if you've ever had one where man, the dog knows what you're thinking and you know what it's thinking, it's just awesome because you don't have to instruct it anymore it knows it knows you, you know it, it starts acting this way, so that means it wants to do this and you go there, okay, he wants to go over there. So if I just let him out of the car, he's going to go over there and do what he wants to do, and then he's going to do what I want to do. And that's going to last for a while, and then, then he's going to want to do what he wants to so I'll let him. And, and we get this thing going, and it's awesome. And then the dog wasn't there anymore. And it was so powerful in that interview. And he said to him, he said, you know, death begets life. And he says, that feeling that you're having that is so strong should remind you of how good it was. And it is. How good it was. Because if there was no sorrow, there was no good. Sorrow by definition is that grieving, empty, hollow, harsh feeling that you experience from the loss of something good. That sorrow reflects on all the good that was there. And although it was a punishment to Adam and Eve, it was a reflection on how good they have it. Sorrow is going to come your way. You really need to focus and reflect on how good, the the more grievous it is, the, the more it should remind you of how good it was. God let them have the garden. He gave it to them, right? That sorrow is going to come. Just reflect on how good it was that God allowed you to have that, how much it benefited you. And use that that sorrow that God invented on that day of original sin to, to remind you of how good that God has for you. It's gone. Mom's gone. The, the dog's gone. Your children are gone. That event, that house, that life, your your Wife that died, or, or, or your, whatever took your life, or your—it was—it was good because God made it that way. And I just want you to reflect a little bit on that today, and and look back on this story maybe through a little bit different light. That maybe that timeline you created over the past, maybe maybe it wasn't the way you think that it was. And there's always more in there. There's come on, I read over it fast. I didn't drill down on all those verbs and all that. There's just not enough time. But the takeaway, if there is one tonight, is that sorrow that we'll all experience or maybe we're currently experiencing. That's, that's a God thing. He invented that. And it, it really is a reflection on how good we have it with God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this this time opportunity to share this in Scripture. Lord, I just pray that we'd be mindful of what you want us to do, how we are to live our life, and how to deal with that sorrow when it comes our way. Lord, provide us safety and travel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.